If you know of a product that could help athletes reduce concussions by over 99%, wouldn't you want it? If NFL athletes like defensive back Daniel Sorensen of the Kansas City Chiefs and New Orleans Saints used it, wouldn't you want it? As athletes get bigger, stronger, and faster, we're seeing an increase in the amount of concussions in contact sports. According to the National Football League, concussions increased by 18% in the 2022 regular season. We're also seeing an increase in concussions in other sports. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there are between 1.6 and 3.8 million sports-related brain injuries every year. But there's new technology out there where data has shown to reduce concussions by 99.98%. We at the Football Learning Academy are driven to help athletes improve safety and reduce injuries. We've seen the effects on older players and want to do what we can to make contact sports safer for those who participate. That technology that we're talking about is the Power Plus mouth guard. Unlike other mouth guards, this is worn on the lower part of your jaw. How it works is that it shifts the position of your jaw to an optimally physiologically aligned position to reduce the G-force impact on your brain. If that's not enough, the Power Plus mouth guard has shown to increase an athlete's performance by increasing strength, stamina, and oxygen intake, all while allowing you to speak normally while wearing the device. The Power Plus mouth guard works for every sport and is very easy to customize to each individual in order to position your jaw at its optimal physiological location for your unique bite. Over-the-counter mouth guards are one size fits all. The Power Plus mouth guard is revolutionary and the data has shown results. Of the over 6,500 athletes that use the Power Plus mouth guard, the amount of diagnosed concussions was 0.2%. If you're an athlete or the parent of an athlete, you'll want to learn more about the Power Plus Mouth Guard. Go to powerplusmouthguard.com to learn more and tell them that the Football Learning Academy sent you. This is Pro Football Hall of Famer John Hanna, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. To learn more about the Football Learning Academy, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. If you like what you hear with this or any of our episodes, give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast platform. It helps us grow our podcast so that we can continue to bring you quality content. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for our show, email us at admin at football-learning-academy.com to talk about the various options available to you. We'd love to talk to you about adding you to our team. Now on to our episode. Today's special guest is Emerson Martin, who played offensive guard for the Carolina Panthers and Pittsburgh Steelers of the NFL, then the Barcelona Dragons in the World League of American Football, and the Mobile Admirals of the Regional Football League. He was on the Pittsburgh Steelers Super Bowl team in 1995, won a championship with the Barcelona Dragons, and won a championship with the Mobile Admirals. After his playing days were over, he went into coaching. 
for the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we discuss the first ever NFL draft, which occurred February 8th through 9th, 1936, at the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia. Now let's get to our interview with Emerson Martin. I'd like to welcome Emerson Martin to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Emerson? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. Good. Let's start by talking about your playing career. You went undrafted out of Hampton University. Did you think that you'd have a shot at an NFL roster? Uh, to be honest with you, the NFL was never my thing. Um, I grew up at home with a father who was a person who always said, do your best. I don't do it at all. I had opportunities to go to Carolina, NC State, a couple of the big colleges and big programs in the state of North Carolina, and chose Hampton because I did not see the NFL on my radar. Uh, at that present time, NFL wasn't what it is today. People didn't talk about it, didn't prepare for it. There were NFL guys who had second jobs because they were taking care of their family. So it's not the same market that it is today. It didn't pay the way it paid today. And it was, a diff- it was just a different time. So my thing was to be the best that I could possibly be at the level that I was at. And uh, and I think I achieved that. And you were on the practice squad with the Chiefs in 1994. Was that for the entire season or just part of the season? No, that was for the entire season. I was there with Joe Montana, Marcus Allen. Uh, Will Shields and I are still really good friends. Um uh, 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 Danny Valero, uh, uh, John Alt. There were so many great people that were on that offensive line with me at that time. And a lot of great players was in Kansas City as well. You must be pretty happy that the uh, the Chiefs are now in the Super Bowl. Um, I am happy with the fact because they gave me my first opportunity. Um, grew up a Pittsburgh fan. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get to that later, but grew up a Pittsburgh fan. And 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 so having a chance to play for the Chiefs, having a chance to play pro ball, period, was a great opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely talk about the Steelers in a little bit. But um, so during the offseason after 1994, uh, you signed with the expansion Carolina Panthers and played in a few mm-hmm. games there. What was it like playing for an expansion team? So it was great coming home. Uh, it was like it was good playing for my home team. A lot of challenges that I didn't expect with that. So coming home was good to come home and play for your home team, but it was bad because it made you accessible to everybody. So everybody that knew you was always calling you, and they would call your mom or call your parents. And so to focus on your job was really hard. Um, knowing what I know, I probably would have re-signed with the Chiefs and stayed there. But um, it was fun, great opportunity, um, and I enjoyed it. So uh, partway through the season, you signed to be on the practice squad of the Steelers. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, what point in the season did that happen? So that was around game eight. Uh, uh, Donnie Shell was in the front office at that time with Carolina, and uh, – there was a lot of controversy around me no longer playing and how I got to that point. Um, so Donnie called the Steelers and uh, actually made that happen. And I became a Pittsburgh Steeler. And that's thanks to Donnie Shell. Um, if you know anything about him, great guy, an amazing, amazing man. Uh, was a great athlete, but 
more amazing as a person. And uh, and was always trying to look out for for players, especially him being an HBCU guy, me being an HBCU guy. He wanted to look out for those guys because we were kind of the underdogs. So um, he did it for me. So being a big fan of the Steelers, yeah, had to have been pretty happy to now be playing for your favorite team, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And it, absolutely. I guess it definitely helped, too, that you went to the Super Bowl that year. <laughs> uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think I won. <laughs> I think we were 0-7 at the time at Carolina. So I went from 0-7, uh, leaving in the middle of week eight, going up to Pittsburgh to finding myself in the Super Bowl at the end of the year. Now, so that was an exciting time. So as part of the practice squad, were you on the sidelines for the Super Bowl? Always, yes. So uh, once the season's over, everybody resides. Nobody's – it's not really a practice squad anymore. It's, it's you get to that 80-man uh, roster again. So everybody's pretty much active for the Super Bowl. So you, everybody travel, everybody practice. It was a, a great experience. Mm. Great experience. So where were you for the 1996 season? 96 season, I was with Pittsburgh again uh, at the beginning of the year. So from 96 to 99, I had stints with Pittsburgh off and on. Um, and uh, in 99, that's when I retired because I – Something happened with my back, retired, and I started coaching. Um, so once I started coaching, I started coaching arena football at first. Moved back to my hometown, which is North Carolina. Was coaching for the Carolina Cobras in 99. Um, and I coached there from 99 into well, 2000 season because they start at the beginning of the year. So the 2000 season, 2001, Coach for the Arena League, and then in 2000, at the end of 2001, started coaching college football at St. Augustine College. Stayed there for two years. After that, um, got married uh, to a young lady from Roxborough, North Carolina, and uh, made Carolina my home. Actually started, brought into a dump truck business, started driving dump trucks, and uh, did that for as long as I could. Um, until I had some issues health-wise. Um, had to have back surgery and stuff like that as a result of me not playing. So doctor doctor that I knew and that I met while coaching the Cobras was like, you know, you're, you're going to shorten your quality of life in a dump truck. And so um, he told me to do something else. So after that, my wife and son, we started a company called Players to Pros where we were training young athletes and taking them to different colleges across the country. And in a three-year span, we put about 200 kids in college um, on scholarship and helped them out. Well, after that, um, everybody was like, you need to get back into coaching. So I coached at a a private school, went to -to back-to-back state championships, won one, lost the first one, won the second one. After that, um, left there and then did the Bill Walsh intern program for two years with the Colts and Frank Wright. After that, ended up at Juniata College uh, as an office coordinator. And coached there, sat out a year, and then I ended up in the USFL, of course, with the Pittsburgh Modelers. Coached the offensive line there. We went from 
last in our division to winning our division and losing the championship game. Of course, the reason why I'm not coaching right now is because the two leagues merged. Once the two leagues merged, um, both leagues dropped four teams. I happen to be one of the four teams that was dropped. And so right now, sitting at home, uh, talking to some of my friends uh, that are still coaching and in the process of seeing what's going to happen in this 2024 season of the NFL and possibly get an intern or an assistant offensive line coaching position in the NFL. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. So let's unpack some of the stuff that you were talking about there. So the Bill Walsh internship that you had with the Colts, tell me what that internship program was about and what it was like, you know, interning with Frank Reich. So the good thing is that I was interning with someone that I knew. Frank and I played together at Carolina and that, and we had seen each other on the FCA circuit for many years. So Frank was very instrumental in bringing me there. Um, just getting a chance when he first got there, Colts were, you know, a winning team doing very well. Uh, it was before Luck had retired, then Luck retired, and that kind of left. I think that kind of started the snowball effect with him. Um, but he had a pretty good franchise going in the right direction. Going there, I had the opportunity to work with the offensive line. Howard Mudd was still there. Howard Mudd, people will know him as a Hall of Famer. And so he was an assistant that got a chance to work with him and then also worked a little on the D-line. Um, it was great. Got a chance to talk to Frank a lot uh, after practices and just talk about what it takes to be an NFL coach, uh, building a franchise, different things like that. So gain the wealth of knowledge just by being able to talk with someone. And then it's always great when you know someone because you can be candid, you can be honest, and we have some really good conversations. Now, your aspirations for coaching, are you looking to, you know, long-term goals? Do you want it to be an offensive line coach? Do you want to be an offensive coordinator, head coach? What What's your aspirations with coaching? So I love the offensive line. Um, I would love to be a head coach at my alma mater at Hampton University. Uh, one, because I think there's a lot that we leave on the table at HBCUs. I think their organizational skills um, I think also with a lot of the stuff that I've learned in the different schools that I've been at, recruiting would be a plus for me. Um, and then, two, doing some offenses, doing some different things, uh, taking the things that I've learned throughout and being able to apply them at an HBCU um, where there are financial challenges, there are all kinds of different challenges that's there. Um, I think uh, being a head coach on a high school level at a private school, doing funding, uh, building a coaching staff from scratch, uh, coaching my coaches and teaching uh, gives me an advantage. Also, those coaches that coach with me at the private school also work with me at uh, Players to Pros, the organization where we train all these athletes and we were able to get predominantly a lot of kids in the D1. Um, there's two kids that was in my program when we first started. One was uh, 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 Larell Merkinson, who plays D-line for the Rams. And another one was Jonathan Kingsley, who's a D-lineman for the Buffalo Bills. They both are currently there. So um, when you think in a three-year span you had two guys that make it to the NFL with the odds of a high school kid, uh, 
getting that high. I think we were pretty productive. I think yeah. we were pretty productive in what we were doing. I would definitely say so. Is that program still active? No. Uh, once I started coaching in college, because of the college rules, it gives you an unfair advantage. You can't have, and then I would know who the recruits were. And I had a recruiting advantage. I was involved with families because we started sixth grade and up. So um, NCAA doesn't allow you to have that unfair advantage. So in order to move up and and do the things, I had to stop the program. Now, of course, I think I may have stayed in high school if it wasn't for Mac Brown. So Mac Brown that recruited me in high school, he came down to recruit some kids out of my high school program, and he knew of my Players of Pros program, and he told me that I needed to get out of high school, get into college, because there was just a greater need for what I was doing. And so Mac Brown was very instrumental in me jumping up in levels. Um, if it were not for that, I probably would have stayed where I was. Back to uh, your playing career a little bit, because you're unique in the fact that you were in the Super Bowl, you were in a World Bowl, you won the World Bowl while you mm -hmm. were with Barcelona, and then you also mm -hmm. won a championship with the Regional Football League when you were with Mobile yeah. Admirals. So I did. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your time with the Barcelona Dragons. What was it like playing overseas? So playing overseas was exciting. Of course, at that time, a lot of allocated players um, from different teams. Um, John Kitna uh, was our quarterback. Uh, Everett Lindsay was our left tackle. Um, Gary Brown uh, played left tackle and right tackle one year. Um, it's there's some guys that were there. Uh, Darren Thorpe that played for the Jets uh, that played with me over there that came back in and played in the NFL. Um, and so um, it was exciting. Barcelona was great. Uh, we stayed on the beach. Uh, so we were done every day around 12 o'clock. And uh, it was really nice. It was really nice. And uh, just had a good group of guys uh, that bonded well together and went on a run. And uh, and we won a championship. Uh, the life off the field, uh, being able to travel all over NFL, all over Europe, seeing the different cities, uh, enjoying those different things and doing it with different people that you build those bonds and you still talk to those people today. Um, Bill Kayak is another guy whose father was an NFL coach. Bill was an NFL coach. His grandfather also was an NFL coach. So he was third generation and he played. And uh, he worked with me in the USFL last year as our tight ends coach. So you build those relationships, those bonds and, you got to know a lot of people, and it was just – it was football. It was really good football on a high level. Um, I think one of the most exciting things for me that I take away is that I was voted the number one offensive lineman over there. Um, so I played all five in Barcelona, started as a center. But if anybody went down, we had a sixth guy who was a center. And so we only had six offensive linemen. And so if somebody went down, I would have to move to that spot. We would bring in the backup some. And so um, it was just really good for me. And you had played uh, center or tackle? As I know, you're normally uh, at the guard position. Had you played the other positions prior to this? 
Uh, well, in college, I played all of them. And uh, in Kansas City, uh, uh, I tell you, meeting with Alex Gibbs, in Kansas City, I played more guard than anything. Kansas City wanted to send me to Barcelona to play center. And instead of going to Barcelona to play center, I went to the Panthers and played guard. Now, the Panthers, uh, Mike Webster was there. And, of course, you know Webby from from the Pittsburgh days back in the day. He taught me how to play center. And so when I got to Barcelona, that's what I played. I mean, learning from Mike Webster is not a bad thing, huh? No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I, I, I've had uh, really great coaches. Um, the coaches that I love the most would be um, Alex Gibbs because Alex and I would meet every morning at 6.30 after I did my lifting. And we meet from 6.30 to about 8 every morning. And he's his football IQ and the things that he taught me about football is is just phenomenal. Uh, the second coach that I would talk about that I had that did the most and was most instrumental would be Kent Stevens. Kent Stevens and what he did in Pittsburgh, uh, just the style of play, the smash mouth, and it was a gap down backer offense, more of a veer offense, power, you know, pin pull uh, offense. I learned a lot there. Of course, the West Coast offense is letting man go off, read, read option on the back and block play side backer. And so those two things helped form what I know about football. And then in college, I ran a wing T. And so in college, those are the three offenses, only three offenses that was ever designed. You got a wing T, which started out as a true T before passing became what it is. And it's just a manipulation of the wings to go to a full spread. All of those are still a wing T offense, but it's designed by the two guards pulling. Then you go to what was called a V offense, where they came in, it was still the wing, and it was the wishbone, and then it matriculated into pro-style high formation, broken wings, all of those different things. But it's the pin and pull of the line that determines the offense. And then I got into a West Coast offense. West Coast offense has some principles of of the wing T where both guards will pull, but it's basically a rezone. And it's every guy blocking onside, giving cutback lanes, and it's all about flow, letting a back be a back where you don't have to have a fullback. Um and I just think those are the essence of the way offenses are blocked. Uh, in the old days, you had uh, receivers when you had a, a pocket. You really had a pocket set uh, where you would set the pocket. You put two backs in the back for to take the people off the edge and protect the quarterback. In the West Coast, it's all a, a slide where they have two and three jet, where you put three on three on one side. The back takes the two and reads. The quarterbacks take the second one. And it allows you to block with, with five or six as opposed to having to keep seven in the max protect. You can get more people into the routes. So those things have been instrumental in what I've learned. Of course, you hear me talking, I'm talking like a coach more than a player. But, yeah, so uh, being, in that, being in that situation, I've learned a lot. Uh, but uh, I had a lot of great coaches. And I also played for Jim McNally. Jim McNally is famous for Tony Munoz, but him and Alex differ. Jim McNally is, came in an era where 
guys weren't as fast as they are today. So he would step back to go forward, to get on a zone angle and block. Where today's game, you step backwards, that player's already in your, sitting in your lap, and you can't move them. So, but concept-wise, uh, probably three of the best coaches you could ever ask to be coached by. Yeah, I mean, they are definitely up there as uh, as some of the best. Is there a favorite uh, version of offense that you have? I mean, obviously, you know, as a player, you probably preferred something, but then as a coach, maybe you wanted something different. Talk to me about the two different styles of offenses that you enjoyed. So I love a West Coast offense. West Coast offense are more athletic guys, uh, always two at the point of attack. And the key to the West Coast is really teaching guys when to and how to get to the second level. Um, a lot of times guys are in a rush. They take off to the second level too fast. And that's the same in anything, even in the veer with gap down backer, because I think now when you look at offenses, everybody has some form of veer in West Coast. I think people like the West Coast for the passing options and the RPOs in the run game. But still, when you come back down to the running ball, it goes back to a pin and pull. There's so many people that say they run a West Coast, but they still use pin and pull uh, to get on the angle, uh, to get, you know, separation and create alleys. And so um, I love the West Coast with some variations of the pin and pull. Now, you're saying that, you know, teaching – players to be able to get to the second level and sometimes you see them get there too quickly you're also i'm guessing seeing that they're not getting there fast enough um sometimes people can't get off um defensive linemen are taught the hole when you two got them and you double team them so that somebody else can make that love that play so there's a way to get there um and, and there's timing and the thing about it is the speed of the game changes with each level. And it's all about your running backs. In the NFL, when you have great running backs, the speed of the game, they run with faith. So they know that that hole is going to be there. Once they decide to hit it, they hit it, knowing that when they get there, they'll open up. Um, I was watching the Kansas City game, and Pacheco had a run for about nine yards, and you could not see through the hole, and all of a sudden you see him break through the crease and burst. Um, that's a guy running with faith, knowing where the hole is supposed to be and trusting the blockers in front of him. Uh, he put his foot in the ground and just hit it. And so, and then you have guys that on a pro level are waiting to see it. If they're waiting to see it, by the time they hit it, it's closed. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a fine level. It's a fine line um, of teaching the concept, but it, you have to know what the back, which back you're working with. Um, how the back runs, uh, you take uh, – so that's, we were talking about Pacheco's a hard runner who hit the ball hard, who hit the ground the right way, and you take a, a Le'Veon Bell that was in Pittsburgh that was one of the most patient backs that you've ever seen. The timing is different for them. Le'Veon had the ability to hesitate to make the second-level move, and it was easier for the timing of the lineman to come off because he could wait for the guy to commit because – Le'Veon was such a patient runner. Um, the other one, when you got a guy that hits it hard, you got to hit that guy, bang him hard enough that that guy can get on and sustain the block and get to the next level. And because that back is already on your back. And so it's just 
personnel, knowing personnel, knowing how you're going to teach it. And then it's repetition. It's all about timing. Just like a quarterback and the receivers have to develop timing. It's the same thing with a line and a, and a running back. Yeah, I figure there's a lot of instincts in there because, yeah, you may have the vision, you may have the faith to be able to go through the line, but you also have to see, okay, based off of either how the defense is coming after you or uh, how the offensive linemen are able to get leverage on the defensive line, you may see them pushing more one way or another based off of yes. the momentum. And so having those instincts and that vision um, is definitely going to be something beyond just faith or beyond um, just, you know, having more patience. Do you agree yes. with that? I agree. I agree totally. And, and then, too, it's the speed of the back. Some backs are faster. Some backs are slower. So it's different how you how you do that. And so the difference now is you have uh, a committee of running backs. So you have to know who's back there. And that committee of running backs have to know who's blocking and, and how to adjust those things. I imagine you have to adjust your personnel too, as far as the types of offensive linemen that you have, because one may need more strength. One may need more speed, uh, depending on what type of blocking schemes you're using and stuff like that. Is, is there something that you specifically look for in offensive linemen in order to uh, be able to do the different schemes that you have, or is it going to be based off of the running backs that you have? Well, a lot of times, because when you're coaching, you know, in the coaching profession, it's, it's not longevity. Sometimes coaches move around. So a lot of times it's what you inherit. So you have to be able to coach what you got. Um, I think my preference would be um, linemen that could run. Um, Alex Gibbs' preference was he didn't want linemen that were 300 pounds. So at that time, if you were bigger than 300 pounds, you wasn't a mover. So for him, it was guys that were under 300 pounds that could run. Um, and when you look at today's game, you got guys that are 340 that can run times that guys couldn't run back then. So now it's not more so the size of the guy, but it's a guy who's athletic and can run. Look at Trent Williams with the 49er. One of the biggest left tackles, probably one of the most athletic guys that you ever see play on the offensive line. So it's all about personnel, what you can do, what you're drafting for, what kind of offense you're running. Um, so for me, the biggest thing for me is rhythm. Offensive line is rhythm. You punch on a rhythm. Your body moves on a rhythm. So it's it's being able to have a rhythm. If a guy can dance, I can teach him how to play offensive line. The guy that doesn't dance has got two left feet. It's kind of hard to teach to be rhythmic and to understand how to move his feet and punch in rhythm. Um, and so – it's easier to train a kid that's got rhythm. Now, were you pretty quick at uh, when you were playing? So coming out of the Hampton, I was 302 pounds around a 489 and a 4.92. Hmm. So I would think I was pretty quick. <laughs> your size, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would think I was pretty quick. And so um, Alex and I wanted me out there in Kansas City, and I tell you um, – not only did they bring me as a preacher, they paid me more. My signing bonus was bigger than our fifth-round pick. Mm -hmm. um, so I signed really a contract like a drafted player. Um, and so their biggest thing was they had just gotten Will Shields the year before, and they showed me um, 
the San Francisco 49ers where they had the two guards pulling. And there was a series that I pulled every series. So they put it up on the reel, and I was like, that's why we want you. Because we're going to pair you as a left tackle, as a left guard, and Will Shields as a right. And you could be here for many years. Um, you know, I think that as you mature, you learn different things. Um, one of the biggest thing I tell my kids now is go where you celebrate it, not tolerate it. In Kansas City, I was celebrated. Um, they paid me well as a free agent. Um, they asked me to do something to be patient, uh, which is something I didn't want to. We had Dave Zott. We had Grunhart. We had Will. We had uh, uh, Danny Vila. And we had um, Joe Valerio. And we had uh, Lips that was out of Notre Dame. Well, the thing was, they wanted me to come back another year and sell a practice squad. And and then they would sign me to a big turn deal and they wanted me to go to NFL Europe. The expansion draft came. Kansas City gave me a signing bonus that was just as big as the one that I signed with Kansas City. And they told me that they were gonna sign Derek Graham and free agency, whom I played side by side with and at Kansas City during the spring. And I would have the opportunity to start now. And so for me, it was playing now that that really was exciting. But just as any other place you go, people have a draft. McNally had a draft, drafted a couple of linemen. He wanted to see his linemen perform. And it didn't matter to whether they were playing at the same level or not. Those were his draft picks. He wanted to play his draft picks rather than me. And that's when Donnie Shell told me that he, you know, he'd find an opportunity for me. And that's how I ended up in Pitchworth. Now, in 1999, you played for the Mobile Admirals, as we had mentioned before, in the Regional mm-hmm. Football League. Talk to me about the experience of playing that Regional Football League, because that team was only around for one season, right? So the Regional League was a league that took guys from certain regions and made teams. Um, it was just like NFL Europe. It was the opportunity of not having to go overseas again and playing with reputable play people on a team. Of course, Sherman Douglas was our, our running back, and he was a pro bowler that had played for the Cowboys. Um, he was from Mobile. And so putting that team together, um, I played with um, – there was a guy that played with me, uh, Bernard. I can't think of Bernard's last name. But he played in Minnesota and he played with me in Pittsburgh. Bernard Daphne. Bernard was our right tackle. Gary Brown that had played for the Green Bay uh, and that played with me in NFL Europe. He was our left tackle. Then I played center there. We had two guards that came from college. Um, Sherman Douglas rushed for well over $2,000, 2,000 yards that season. And we just had a dominant team. Um, it was nice because I knew guys that I picked up the phone and called and they signed and they came and played with me. And so um, instrumental in, in helping them build a team. Uh, and then uh, me and those two guys stayed in the house together while we were down there. So um turned out to be a great season. We ended up winning the championship. Uh, I, we had a great coach. 
Uh, we had um, uh, our coach was head coach for the Bengals back in the day and was a Super Bowl coach. So um, we had a great staff of people, great coaches, and we were able to do a really good job. And we won down there um, and had one of the better teams. Emerson, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And best of luck. And uh, hopefully you get another coaching job really soon. Uh, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, it's been a great opportunity to be on your show. And uh, you really did your research. I do a lot of interviews. I never hear about the Regional Football League or NFL Europe. Uh, so I really appreciate you taking your time to do the research on me and, and really digging down into who I am. So I thank you. I think it's a great show, and I hope that people continue to watch and look for some of the legends that are on with you. But uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed our interview with Emerson Martin, but we're not done. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about the first NFL draft, which was held in relative obscurity compared to today's standards. Burt Bell, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles and future NFL commissioner, came up with the idea as a way to keep the league from going broke. Well, at least that's what's officially stated. In reality, he wasn't able to, or at least was unwilling, to pay top dollar for college talent. Even if he matched the contracts being offered by other teams, the players always defaulted to the better teams for obvious reasons. Bell's team was 3-5-1 and one in 1933, their first year in the league, and 4-7 and seven in 1934. They were not going to win the battle with teams like the Chicago Bears or New York Giants. Now, this was a compounding situation. His team was bad. As a result, fans were not going to pay money to see a bad team. Without the gate receipts, he couldn't get the money to pay for top talent to improve the team. It was a vicious cycle. So Bell introduced the concept of a collegiate draft at the league meeting on May 18, 1935. His thought was that the stronger teams would always attract the best college football players. Since Bell's team had struggled, they had only won seven games since their inception in 1933, he wanted a shot at the top collegiate talent. Bell made a motion to create the draft at the NFL meeting, and George Preston Marshall seconded the motion. The vote was unanimous, and the draft was instituted. The first NFL draft was held February 8th through 9th, 1936, at the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia. Approximately 90 players were on the board. After the first five rounds, Bell moved that the draft continue for an additional four rounds. Again, George Preston Marshall seconded the motion, and the motion carried unanimously. The Eagles had the first draft pick as a result of their 2-9-0 record in 1935. They selected Jay Burwanger, an All-American halfback from the University of Chicago. Burwanger won the Downtown Athletic Club trophy after the 1935 collegiate season. That trophy was renamed the Heisman Trophy after the club's athletic director, John W. Heisman, who passed away in 1936. Along with the trophy, he won a trip for two to New York City. According to the National Football Foundation, Bernwanger had said, No one at school had said anything to me about winning it other than the few congratulations. I was more excited about the trip than the trophy because it was my first flight. However, the Eagles had a problem with their first pick. Berwanger was hesitant to play professional football. First, he wanted to finish his studies at Chicago. Next, he wanted to maintain his amateur status in order to try out for the 1936 U.S. Olympic team. He had aspirations of becoming a decathlete at the Summer Games. According to the Associated Press, Berwanger had said, I haven't decided what to do. 
I want to play professional football next fall because of its practical advantages. I might take a coaching job, although it's my ultimate intention to enter business in preference to making a career in professional athletics. For the time being, I'm mainly interested in finishing my courses at Chicago, graduating next June, and then trying to win a place on the Olympic team. After failing to make the Olympic team, Burwanger started negotiations to play professional football. Rumors leading up to the draft had Burwanger asking for $1,000 per game. The average at the time was approximately $200 to $250 per game. The Eagles' best offer was $150 per game. Failing to reach an agreement, the Eagles traded his rights to the Chicago Bears for tackle Art Buss. A report came out in 1948 that the trade was actually arranged before the draft. According to the report, Hallis knew that the Eagles needed players and would not be able to pay Burwanger's asking price. Hallis would send a player or two to Philadelphia if the Eagles drafted Burwanger. In exchange, the Bears would get the local star. Now that the trade was finalized, it was George Hallis's turn to try and reach a deal with the star player. Burwanger reportedly asked for $25,000 per year to play for the Bears. Hallis balked at that. After additional negotiations, Burwanger dropped his asking price to $15,000 per year. Hallis never went above an offer of $13,500 per year. A deal was never reached, and Burwanger never played professional football. From 1936 through 1939, Burwanger coached football at the University of Chicago. He also wrote a column for the Chicago Daily News. He died of lung cancer in 2002 at the age of 88. Over the history of the NFL draft, Burwanger was one of only two first picks not to play a down in the NFL. The second was Ernie Davis, the Syracuse star running back. In 1962, Davis was selected by Washington, as well as the Buffalo Bills of the rival American Football League. He was diagnosed with leukemia in 1962 and passed away in 1963. The second selection of the 1936 NFL draft and the first draft pick to play professional football was Riley Smith out of Alabama. The versatile All-American could play practically any position and was selected by Boston. The Eagles failed to sign any of their 1936 draft picks. After going 1-11 in the 1936 season, they again had the first draft pick for the 1937 draft, which was used to select Sam Francis out of the University of Nebraska. He didn't sign with the Eagles either. Their second pick that year was used to select Fran Murray out of the University of Pennsylvania. He did sign, as did their third pick, Drew Ellis, out of TCU. The remaining seven selections never played a down of professional football in the NFL. So to summarize, the first few drafts of the Eagles were failures. There are a few notes to take out of the first draft. First, there were four future Pro Football Hall of Famers that were selected in 1936. Joe Steidahar, Tuffy Lehmans, Wayne Milner, and Dan Fortman. Second, only 24 of the 81 players selected in that draft played in the NFL. That's a quick history of the first NFL draft. We'll do a deeper dive in a future episode closer to this year's draft. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the Football Learning Academy, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. If you like what you've heard with this or any of our episodes, 
give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast platform. It helps us grow our podcast so that we can continue to bring you quality content. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for our show, email us at admin at football-learning-academy.com to talk about the various options available to you. We'd love to talk to you about adding you to our team. Thanks for listening.